Like always, I'd like to start with a little truth before the fiction. You ever heard of the Dyatlov Pass incident? On January 27th, 1959, a group of 10 people, experienced in long ski tours and mountain expeditions, started the trek up into the northern Ural Mountains in Russia. They were headed for a particular mountain some 10 kilometers north of where they started. On the 28th of January, a member of the group, Yuri Yudin, was forced to go back due to an illness, leaving nine. On the 31st, the group found themselves at the edge of a highland area and prepared to make the climb. They left caches of food in the wooded area they were leaving, food for their return journey. On February 1st, the hikers began to make their way through the mountain pass. Worsening weather lowered their visibility and they lost their way, heading one and a half kilometers in the wrong direction. When they finally realized their mistake, it was too late to turn back, and so they set up camp. Before the group left, they had set up a failsafe. They would send a telegram to their sports club once they returned, no later than the 12th of February. But the leader of the group, Igor Dyatlov, mentioned to Yuri Yudin before he was forced to turn back that he expected it would take longer than that. So when the 12th came and went without word from the group, no panic was raised. Not until the 20th of February, when family demanded a rescue effort, was a rescue group assembled. Shortly, the army was involved, and helicopters were combing the area. It took the search until the 26th of February, 25 days after the party lost their way, to find the campsite, deep in the mountain pass, a kilometer and a half out of the way. What the investigators found baffled them. The tent was cut open from the inside and covered in snow. Most of the group's belongings were left behind, including shoes. Nine sets of footprints, some bare, some in socks, some in just a single shoe, led to the woods on the opposite side of the pass. At the forest sedge, the first two bodies, shoeless and dressed in only underwear, were found aside the remains of a fire and three more bodies were found between the camp and the forest, in poses that suggest they were returning to the tent. These initial five bodies had no notable injuries, leading the investigators to believe they had all died of hypothermia, but when the other four bodies were found, two months later, in a ravine deep into the woods, that story started to shift. They were dressed in pieces of their compatriots' clothes. Three of these four had fatal injuries. One had major skull damage, and two had major chest injuries. The medical examiner claimed the types of injuries he was seeing would have to have been caused by a major collision, like a car crash, but their flesh was virtually untouched, like they had been pressed under a high amount of pressure until their bones cracked. One was missing her eyes, tongue, part of her lips, and a portion of her skull. It's still not entirely known what happened to these nine people. It's been posited that they were caught in an avalanche or caught in a military experiment, or were suffering from an induced panic attack due to infrasound. Or maybe they were attacked by a yeti. No one explanation fully explains what the investigators found there. And we'll probably just never know. This month, on death, dying, and other things, two mysteries. In our first story the wounded man, 
a witness to a bizarre event becomes obsessed with its conclusion. In the second, exactly one inch, a friend's sudden disappearance disturbs the ones closest to him. Death and dying are the thresholds between this world and the next, the boundary between light and dark, the barrier between worlds, and that's where we're going. We are going into the shadows to bring you stories of horror and heartbreak. From MWHS, this is Death, Dying, and Other Things. I'm Justin Buskey. Stay with us. Um, it's April 13th, 2013. My name's Trevor Wales. I want to read something. On April 30th, 1998, at 4.12 in the afternoon, a man walked out of the bathroom in a Canton, Ohio bar, bleeding profusely from his abdomen. He asked the bartender to call an ambulance, stumbled onto the street, and disappeared down an alleyway. On the same day, at the same time, nearly 800 miles to the west, at a hotel in Kansas City, Missouri, a man traveled down the elevator to the lobby, clutching his bleeding stomach, and asked the attendant to call an ambulance before vanishing into the bathroom. 300 miles to the north in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, a man covered in his own blood stumbled into a crosswalk on 16th and C in front of two drivers headed towards Cedar River. They are all described as the same man, same crooked nose, same penetrating green eyes, same dirty blonde hair, same gray button-up shirt, same wool coat. In a total of 16 instances across five states, on April 30th, 1998, at 4.12 p.m., this man is spotted by a total of 112 witnesses, covered in his own blood, clutching a wounded abdomen, and then disappearing. He appeared in no security camera footage or photographs, but he did leave a trace at each scene, pools of his dark red blood. That's the best recap I can find. It's from an article published a couple days after the incident. I saw him in a gas station in Kalamazoo. The wounded man, they started calling him. Uh, in articles and on TV. No one knew who he was or why he was or why he appeared in so many places at the same time or why he was bleeding even. (sighs) Was he stabbed? Shot? Bitten? Coverage died pretty quickly. I mean, I guess that's what happens when all you've got is a dead end. The TV coverage died out within a week, and the last article I can find from online is... Uh, from three weeks later, when the DNA and all the blood came back to confirm that, yeah, this was all the same person. Everyone had a theory about the wounded man. He was a coordinated protest against something or other. He was a hoax. 
He was a spirit here to beckon the end times. He was an emissary from another world warning us of the error of our ways. One witness published a book three months after the incident titled What the Wounded Man Was Trying to Say. Even a cult popped up around him and survived for almost a year, and then even that became passe. A cold trail that ended way less interesting than it began. To tell the truth, how could an ending ever live up to that beginning? It would be a lie to say I hadn't thought about the wounded man since. How could you not wonder every once in a while? It's just so odd. So hard not to speculate. Recently, it's been hard to think about anything else. He's been, I don't know, intruding into my thoughts, for lack of a better term. Appearing in my head in old memories, in new memories, in fantasies, especially in fantasies. For example, I'm trying to picture my eighth birthday party right now while I'm telling you the story. It's probably my most cherished memory, the best birthday I've ever had. I'm in the kitchen, at the kitchen table. It's Ghostbusters themed. Now, as an adult, I wonder how my parents could afford all that official merchandise. But they did, for me. My three friends and I are finishing up pizza. Of course, we had pizza. I hardly ate anything else. I was a picky eater. Sorry, Mom. My friend Andrew, across the table from me, makes a face and farts at the table. The four of us laugh. That's enough of that, my mom says, lighting candles on my cake. But she laughs, too. She picks up the cake with both hands, eight candles flickering on top. My dad is taking pictures. They all start singing. I remember it like it happened this afternoon. But then, past my mom, I see him. The wounded man stumbles out of my bedroom. He's bleeding all over the floor. My dad wheels around and gasps. My mom drops my cake to the floor and spreads her arms in front of my friends and I. Call an ambulance, the wounded man says. Andrew starts crying. The wounded man turns and disappears down the hallway, and my parents, after calling the police, after sending my friends home, after the forensics team shows up, after searching the house for any sign of him, clean up the blood. That's not how it happened. I know that's not how it happened. But sitting here now, I can't remember what actually occurred on my eighth birthday. He's there, just around the corner, in all my thoughts, recalling the scent of my grandparents' house, remembering the cheeseburger I had for dinner last night, imagining my ex-girlfriend and I in the shower. If the wounded man was some emissary from some other world here to warn us, he failed. If the wounded man was a spirit beckoning the end times, they hadn't happened yet in the 15 plus years since he'd appeared. But if he had come to simply lodge himself in the thoughts of one unfortunate witness, he succeeded. He's wandering my mind, bleeding all over my brain.
April 14th, 2013. I don't know why I'm recording this stuff. I mean, um, I can't really write. A construction accident four years ago crushed my writing hand, and beyond learning how to sign my name, I haven't really spent much time learning to write with the other. I can type slowly, but that would take so long it hardly seems worth it. On the other hand, I have a phone and a recording app, so why not? It's just for me, anyway. Just to get my thoughts out about this. It's funny, I've never been one to keep journals, you know? Never really thought my life was exciting enough to write down what was happening in it. But this seems different. Like I'll want to remember what's going on in ten years. I had a nightmare last night. About him, of course. He's in all my dreams lately, but this one was violent. I was at that gas station in Kalamazoo. The one I saw him in. I was pumping gas and I looked over just in time to see the wounded man stumble out of the front of the gas station, just like it happened. He stopped, clutching his stomach. Blood poured onto the ground. He shouted for someone to call an ambulance, and then, instead of turning to his left and disappearing around the side of the building like he did 15 years ago, he looked up at me, right in my eyes. I froze. He took a few strained steps toward me. I tried to move. I tried to back up, but I was being held in place by something. A few more steps. Some more blood from his wound. A few more steps. His eyes stayed locked on mine. After a minute or so of him stumbling forward, he was only a foot or so away from me. He could have reached out and touched me. Or I could have reached out and touched him. Instead, he looked down at my stomach. My eyes followed his. The front of my shirt was soaked in blood. My hands flipped to clutch the now gaping wound near my liver. Then I woke up. What's he trying to say? It's April 15th, 2013. I didn't sleep much last night. Kept seeing him every time I closed my eyes. It's getting worse. Ever since that nightmare. He's been looking right at me. And all these memories he's intruding on, he's looking right at me. And all these fantasies he's interrupting. He's looking right at me. Right at me. It's, um, it's April 17th, 2013. Did I make an entry yesterday? I can't remember. It's too dark in here. I keep seeing him out of the corner of my eyes. Always just out of sight. But I know it's him. I know he's watching me. I'm really tired. Just so worn out. 
I just need a good night's sleep. But I can't keep my mind from racing as soon as I close my eyes. I remember having so much trouble sleeping when I was a kid. All those nightmares. It used to drive mom and dad nuts. I'd fall asleep in class, on the bus. There was that one time I fell asleep on the bus, missed my stop, and woke up hours later. The bus was parked. The driver was gone. And all I could see was other buses in every direction. I couldn't get off because I couldn't open the door, and it was late autumn, so I just sat there freezing. It was nightfall before they found me. Mom and Dad somehow blamed me. Yeah, it was my fault the driver didn't check to make sure all those seats were empty. So it's, uh, oh shit, it's um, April 20th, uh, 2013. He's here. I know it. I know it. He's around here somewhere. I keep looking, but he's quicker than me. Not here. Not here. <laughs> what was that? all over my apartment. I must have fallen asleep for a second. He was standing over me, and then I opened my eyes, and he was gone. There's blood all over the floor. There's blood all over the walls. Everywhere. I'm bleeding. I'm bleeding. I saw him, and now I'm bleeding. This is our last episode of 2016. Thanks for listening so far. We couldn't do this without you.
I'm going to try to tell this story as best I can, but I'll tell you right off the bat, I don't have all the details. Peter Harrison woke up on the morning of September 17, 2013, exactly one inch shorter than he was when he went to bed the night before. He didn't notice until he was out of the shower, looking at himself in the mirror, combing his hair. And he wouldn't have noticed either if it wasn't for the crack in the glass that his landlord had been putting off repairing. Standing up straight on September 17th, put his left eye just below that crack, where on any day prior, his left eye would have appeared above. That was his story, at least, when he finally told me about the inch over a round of beers we were sharing at the end of a long week. Five foot eleven inches to five foot ten inches. Peter was my friend. We'd known each other since college. He worked himself up into hysterics now and again, and he was a notorious pessimist. To top it all off, he had been having a legitimately hard time recently. He'd lost his job, a job he really liked, working as a developer at a local startup, and his girlfriend Amber had left him not long after. I chalked it up to the stress, bought him another beer, and changed the conversation. We talked about other things, more pleasant things, like the upcoming football season, letting the noisy bar wrap around us like a blanket. Peter let his guard down, let some of the tension in his shoulders melt away. And whether it was the beer or my company, he smiled for the first time in weeks. I dragged him over to talk to some women at the other side of the bar. He hated when I did that, but that night, the last night I ever saw Peter in person, he played along. We texted all during that week like we normally do. And a week later, I got a voicemail. Peter was already halfway into his first sentence when the voicemail started. It sounded like he had left the phone on the table on the other side of the room, and he was yelling so that the speakerphone would pick him up. He was going on and on about how he was going to call Amber. He wanted her back. I called him back, and he didn't answer. I called Amber just in case she hadn't heard from him. I didn't tell her about the inch. He called me back later that day, and we had a nice conversation. Peter said that losing the inch shifted his outlook a little. He saw things differently. I joked that it was because his eyes were at a different height, and he laughed and insisted that no, he really felt different. He was starting to think it was a good thing that happened to him. It was so unlike him to stay positive, and I told him so. He said he really did feel like a different person. Or at least like things were going to be different. Like things had turned a corner. We made plans for dinner that night. He didn't show up. And he didn't answer any of my calls. When I went to his apartment, he didn't answer his door. And Amber still hadn't heard from him. It wasn't until after I had Amber call him that I got a text message. Sorry. Sick. Peter fell off the map for the next few weeks. I'd text him, and he would only text back about half the time, usually one or two word responses. 
I hated short responses, and he knew it. And so for a while, I just assumed that I had done something to piss him off, but he wouldn't tell me what I'd done. A week went by like this, then two. I started calling him regularly with no luck. Three weeks, and finally, at 3 a.m. on a Thursday morning, I got a call. Well, I got a voicemail. I wasn't up at 3 a.m. to take a call. I don't know how much height I've lost anymore, he said. I haven't slept in a week. I can feel it pressing down on me. My shoulders are breaking. My spine is splintering. I'm being ground into dust, into earth. The stars. I see stars in my ceiling. They're black and cold and so close now. (gasps) What was that? I got a lot of messages like this, and sometimes, when I answered the phone, he'd babble on in the same way, talking over me like he couldn't even hear me, like he still was just trying to leave a message. Amber, who I'd started to talk to more regularly, out of mutual concern for Peter, was getting calls like that too. Amber and I, if I'm being honest, felt kind of helpless. Peter didn't have any family around to help, and it wasn't a crime to leave weird messages on your friend's phones, so the police wouldn't help either. Somehow, Peter was still paying rent, so his landlord wouldn't help either. On November 5th, we stopped getting calls. After two weeks of silence and no further help from police, His bills were still getting paid, and he wasn't disturbing his neighbors. Or from Peter's landlord, he was still paying his rent after all. Amber and I were at Peter's apartment. Our knocks got no answer, but Amber tried the knob and found it unlocked. The smell was the first thing that got us. Like that plastic container you forgot and left in your lunchbox overnight, but spun wildly out of control. Every single dish he owned was dirty. Every single dish. They were piled high in the sink, spilling onto the countertop, clattered to the floor. There was nothing left in his cabinets. The inside of the refrigerator was covered in so much mold that I almost threw up when I opened it. His bedroom wasn't better. In a way, the naked, sweat-stained mattress and singular pile of dirty clothes was worse. He had taken all of the photography, his photography, off the walls and set it down facing the far wall. We found a spreadsheet on his open laptop, a meticulous log of every waking moment of his life. 10 a.m., woke up, went to the bathroom. 10.03, went back to sleep. 10.30 p.m., woke up. 10.40 p.m., ate noodles. Everything was here. Peter's whole life for the last month or so except those calls he had been giving Amber and I. Those were conspicuously absent from his list. By my math, from the quick scan I did of the last couple days' worth of logs, he was down to around 400 calories near the end, mostly canned food. He started eating right out of the can when he ran out of dishes. 
there were many references in these logs to two things. One, something he called the weight, a sinister force he felt around him at all times. Peter wrote about feeling crushed by it one minute, and then minutes later feeling mostly free of it. He wrote about being able to see it. Not explicitly, but he saw the suggestion of the weight everywhere, large and looming. He wrote about feeling his back about to give, the vertebrae about to crack, his knees about to collapse. Second, the chart, which we found in the bathroom on the wall. Forty-nine pencil marks on the wall, one right next to each other, each marked with a date from September 18th, the day after he first discovered the inch, to November 5th. Next to each date was a measurement, 5 feet 10 inches on the September 18th mark, 5 feet 9.5 inches on the next mark, September 19th, 5 feet 8 and 3 quarters inches on the following mark, September 20th. November 5th was marked 3 feet 2 inches. 3 feet 2 inches. It didn't make any sense. All these marks were the same height. From September 18th to November 5th, they were all the same height. There was the tape measure nearby. I measured them all. 5 feet 11 inches. Every single one. While writing this all down, I've started seeing something out of the corner of my eyes, always just outside my vision. Something dark and massive. I see a dark spot on my ceiling glowing faintly. Well, not glowing exactly, radiating darkness, I guess. I think it's a star. One of the stars Peter was talking about, maybe. It's now the night after we walked through his apartment. This morning I woke up feeling heavy and short. Ten separate times I measured my height, checking and rechecking and then checking again to make sure I had gotten it right, to make sure I hadn't made a mistake, to make sure I hadn't actually lost an inch overnight. But I had. This episode of Death, Dying, and Other Things was produced and edited by me, Justin Buskey. The stories, both The Wounded Man and Exactly One Inch, were written by me, too. You can follow me on Twitter, at Justin Buskey. Intro and outro music is by the prolific Eric Warnke. Check him out on SoundCloud. Special thanks to Coffee and to Coffins. Death, Dying, and Other Things is a production of MWHS. New episodes the first Thursday of every month. This has been Death, Dying, and Other Things, and I've been your host, Justin Buskey. Stay out of the shadows.